BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hi, this is Steve. When we started this podcast, we wanted to talk about films from every era and genre. Since then, we've done cinephiles on movies from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. We've talked about dramas, westerns, adventures, superheroes, thrillers, kung fu, comedies, and science fiction. But sometimes, the reason we pick a film is not to explore a new genre, but rather to honor someone whose loss we feel very deeply. Edward Albee, who passed away a little over a week ago, is one of the great playwrights in the history of American theater, and his play, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, is my all-time favorite. It also happens to be one of those rare examples of a film that matches and in some ways even surpasses the original source material. It stars Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, George Siegel, and Sandy Dennis, and is the very first movie from director Mike Nichols. If you've seen it, you know Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is a groundbreaking, shattering, painful, funny, and often challenging movie. If you haven't seen it, well, strap in and get ready because there's nothing else like it. For its incredible performances, beautiful cinematography, deft direction, and above all else, the words of Edward Albee, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, is an absolute classic. And if that's not enough to whet your appetite, John and I will be joined by the amazing Kathleen Early, an actress with her own special connection to both the play and Mr. Albee. Of course, if you think The Cinephiles has gotten much too serious lately, here's a little peek of what we have coming up in October. We're knights of the round table, we dance where we're able. We do routines to call the scenes of footwork in Beck Cable. We dine well here in Camelot, we eat ham and jam and Scamot. Dudley killed Jack. He wants you to kill me. He showed you the photo, didn't he? Didn't he? Oh! What about all the other evidence? What about all that stuff? The, the, the knife? The, the whole business? Well, you said we could throw out all the other evidence. Everything. Every single thing that took place in that courtroom, but I mean everything, says he's guilty. What do you think? I'm an idiot or something? Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Motherfucker. Recognize any of those? That's all coming up this month on The Cinephiles. Who's afraid of Virginia Wolf? Virginia Wolf, Virginia Wolf. Who's afraid of Virginia? <laughs> Hello and welcome. 
Welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, explore its themes, its history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, guys. Uh, I'm John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist and actor and a host of numerous shows here in Los Angeles. And today we're very lucky to have a very special guest. Kathleen Early is a fine actress who has appeared all over regional theater in fantastic plays. You might have seen her on Grey's Anatomy or Across the Universe. And of course, she acted for me in my film, The Assistants. Kathleen, welcome to The Cinephiles. Thank you for having me. Can we stop for a second? Across yeah. the Universe? You mean the Julie Taymor film? Yeah. That I own on Blu-ray that's sitting down there? Yeah, small I part. I absolutely love that film. Well, who were you in that film? Uh, it was the name of my character was SDR Girl. Uh huh. And uh, in the scene where they sing Revolution, yeah. I'm in there. I introduce wow. her to okay. revolutionaries. It's awesome. Yeah, I'm stoked even more so now. Um, uh, that's awesome. That's a it's a really cool movie. Yeah. I enjoy uh, it. Yeah. So when we started talking about having guests on the cinephiles, one of the things we said was we didn't want to have people on to talk about their own work because we thought, well, you know, actors and filmmakers, that's what they always do when they're being interviewed is they talk about their own stuff. And in this case, I'm sort of not breaking the rules with Kathleen, but we're bending them a little bit because this week we're going to talk about um, in honor of the great Edward Albee who just passed away recently, we want to talk about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the fantastic film directed by Mike Nichols, starring Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, Sandy Dennis, and George Siegel. And while Kathleen did not actually work on that film, because I believe that she did not exist <laughs> in 1966. You would be correct. But you do have a special connection to Edward Albee. I do. I was lucky enough to be cast by him twice in New York, first in his... Um, in the premiere of the New York premiere of his play, The Play About the Baby, in 2001, and then later on in 2007 for the Broadway national tour of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, wow. starring Kathleen Turner and Bill Irwin, and uh, Nick played by David Furr. So, so you, you were actually in the play that we're going to talk about that this movie is based on. I was. Honey. I wow. had the joy and terror of playing <laughs> Honey uh, every night, eight shows a week. For how long? For five months. Wow. And if I'm correct, the play is three acts. It right? is three acts. And it's um, extensive what Honey goes through, through more so than the movie. It is. It is. That's true. Yes. Yeah. And um, there were, even for our production, there were cuts. But the play mm -hmm. runs three to three and a half hours, depending on how long uh, your play is, your version of it. Right. But um, originally, Albie had titled the play uh, The Exorcism. Oh. And later on, that became the title of the third act alone. And Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was like a byline or a tagline right. after that that became wow. the title of the play. It's, it's one of those titles that sort of you don't understand what it is. And then it becomes, well, that's what it is. Right. Yeah. At a certain point, it just becomes this. And what was, what was it like working with Albie? How closely did you work with him? It was pretty incredible for somebody, you know, kind of new to the business as I was <laughs> then. Um, he was, uh, as I said, at the uh, casting and audition process and then throughout the rehearsal process which was about a month he was there almost every day and would give notes but through the director uh, for this production it was Anthony Page Sir Anthony Page and he was uh, in our case a man of few words very select words um, and with me, he was always fairly soft-spoken, mm. although I have heard and read uh, that was <laughs> not always be, yeah, true. Yeah, he could be pretty terrifying. <laughs> right. Yeah. He's you mean a, there's a guy who's multidimensional? Exactly. No, yeah, that can't so be right. That can't possible. be right. <laughs> I can't imagine being a director 
directing this play and having Edward Albee sit behind me through the entire rehearsal process. You know, I let me take that back. He was there for the entire rehearsal process of the play about the baby. Mm. Um, because I joined a production that had pre-existed on Broadway and in London, um, the other three people in my cast were kind of... Um, there for my benefit in a way because they were rehearsing a play they'd already done. So he was not there for the entire rehearsal process, but he was there a lot. A lot. <laughs> and, and did you know, did you know Albie's work? I mean, you're a theater performer. You, you must have. I did. I mean, I tried to. I was, my first exposure was in college. I uh, had friends in college who performed Zoo Story. Hmm, right. And it was shocking and um, startling and uh, gruesome and yeah. and so I was enthralled, mm. but um, yes, I knew of his work before I auditioned and was, uh, you know, somewhat in awe and trying not to toss my cookies with nerves. <laughs> I, I I think not. Well, and yet Sandy has to, or Honey it's has to. It's true. No, I, you can use it. You can totally use that that nervous sick feeling. <laughs> <Yeah>. no, nausea <laughs> plays a really big part for a character. I just played reality. Um, John, what, how did you yeah. first come to it? Uh, well, actually, just I saw it, I think, what, maybe 10, 15 years ago, randomly on TCM, because I started to rediscover Elizabeth Taylor during my mid-30s, I think, just rediscovering her work. You know, Giant was my portal into her, and then I started watching all these National Velvet, like all these films of hers, to discover why people were so obsessed with this woman who would become, in a way, at the end, kind of a caricature with her thing right. with diamonds and the stuff with Michael Jackson. You, you forget that there was a ferocious actress underneath this kind of almost untouchable, to, you know, like what she seemed to radiate there at the end. So when I was watching, and of course Richard Burton, who I'd become a fan of reading a book, that a real old book, I'd found in a bookstore uh, of the of detailing John Gilgood directing Rachel Burton in mm. Hamlet, which oh. is a f it's like I have it. It's dog-eared. The covers ripped. The pages are yellow. But to say that I lost myself in a book is an understatement. When I read that thing, and so when they came on the screen, I was like, "Oh, I haven't seen this movie. Let's take a look at it." And it was amazing to see Richard Burton work. And you know the story gossips between you know their romances and whatever, and their, and their marriages and whatever. But like the power that they have in the chemistry, my word! To watch the movie and to see what they bring to these parts. And I've never been married, so I'm only watching through a window to see what this must be like. That's exactly you know? how all marriages are. <laughs> it's exactly like that. Well, I'm just saying, I'm sure there are tensions. You know, Albie hadn't been married either, and wow. he, he wrote it. Interesting. Yeah. Do you know what he based it on? Was it his own? N no. I mean, his own parents or anything? Uh, some of the dysfunction, yes. Okay. Yeah, he has a, so Albie's uh, adopted and okay. has oh, a, wow. had an extremely difficult relationship, from my understanding, with his mother, mm -hmm. who was a strong, difficult, somewhat crazy, not particularly nice lady mm -hmm. that's my understanding yes and he did admit later on that if there there was a couple that he knew through one of his university stints um that this was perhaps loosely not based on but maybe inspired by oh, wow. and uh a towering woman who and a, and a husband who was somewhat lesser than or mowed over perhaps mm. some of the time uh so how i came to this yes was uh so I was, you know, kind of a theater kid and wanted to be an actor. And I saw Zoo Story when I was in high school. Someone did it in high school. And even then, you felt the power and, and the humor and the, the, the speed and the intelligence of that play. Mm -hmm. And that was the first sort of hint. Then I get to college, and I'm a theater student, and I'm in my first 
you know, semester and we're reading Hamlet and we're reading Sophocles and we're reading Arthur Miller. And then I get this book, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? So I read it before I saw the movie or saw the play. Mm-hmm. And I should say, uh, you know, we say this a lot in the podcast, which is that, you know, we're going to spoil everything. So if you yeah. haven't seen this, <laughs> yeah. you need to stop. stop. Right. And, and we say it kind of jokingly. This time I'm really serious. <laughs> this time yeah. you're serious. Yeah, because, you know, <laughs> there, the, yeah, there's spoilers that it might have happened in right. High Noon or in something else we might have talked about. But I remember sitting and reading this play and the when the twists happen and the reveals happen and the secrets happen and there's not just one right. it's twist after twist after revelation after revelation it shattered me it's devastating and it, and at the time you know i was just starting to write plays and it was like suddenly finding yourself standing next to mount everest where you go like this is what you're trying to do this is a play this is what it is and the the <laughs> intelligence and the, and the power, the genius of this play, who's, and this is just me alone in a dorm room with a little paperback. Mm. Word after word after line after line, the complexity and the brilliance and the humor and the brutality of this play is off the charts. Mm. And this is my favorite play. There's Period. bar none. Wow. Yeah, this is it. And, and it's, you know, it's not that I don't love Hamlet. It's not mm. that I don't love, you know, Death of a Salesman. It's, there's a lot of plays that I love. Sure. But this is the one. This is the, this is the pinnacle for me mm-hmm. of American theater. And um, so then it was a few years later that I finally saw the film. And the film locked into me. And mm-hmm. I've seen other productions, including I, before we'd even met, I saw you in, uh, with Kathleen Turner. Wow. Um, and it was a great production. Thank you. But still the model in my brain is Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Mm-hmm. That's just what it is. And what's interesting about it, is they're not who Albie would have wanted. No, he no. wanted Betty Davis. Yeah. And James Mason. And, and James Mason, Mason. Which yeah. Which would have been awesome. They would have been great. I love James They would have been great. Um, James, it, 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 makes, it makes perfect sense. It is a little weird for Betty Davis to come in and have to do an impression right? of herself. Yeah. Mimic her own <laughs> line yeah. from a, a movie that she'd been in. Yeah, that's a little strange, but Betty Davis would have been fantastic. Yeah. So, so we have a, a bunch of history to sort of talk about. We talked a little bit about Albie. Uh, we also ha- got to talk about Elizabeth Taylor mm-hmm. and Richard Burton. So for those of you who don't know, Elizabeth Taylor is, I would say, and I don't know what you think, John, the biggest star, female star in the world at the time. At the time she yep. had, at that point, just made the first female star to make a million dollars in a movie playing yeah. Cleopatra. Right. And for this, she was paid 1.1. 1. 1. She wow. just made 1.1 1. 1 for this? 1.1. 1. Wow. 1. wow. Uh, Burton got 750000 and Albie <laughs> made 500000 Wow. Wow. So um, we all got like 50. Yeah. And, just and, to be in it. And, and not only was Elizabeth Taylor this great star, yeah. she was a, a great beauty. And that's all everyone talked about was this is the most beautiful woman in the world. And that and that she was also a star in the sense of being in the gossip page right. all the time. The, every element of her life, her marriages, her love life, her first, first husband is killed in a plane crash. Um, the you know like all of that was you know yeah, you look the at Eddie Fisher it, stuff all that stuff yeah, yeah. yeah you look at that and that's you know Brangelina today or something right. like that along those lines she put on thirty pounds yeah. to play right. this part and they fired the first uh, cinematographer for trying to make her look too beautiful right well and he also was talking he wanted to film it in color and he right wanted, yeah. yeah right yeah. yeah and 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 so and we had to go from her you know right before this she does Cleopatra which she gets paid a million dollars for. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a movie that I like. No. <laughs> Richard Burton's in it as Richard well. Richard Burton is right. in it playing yeah. Julius Caesar. Yeah. And it's this huge, sweeping epic. I mean, it's ridiculous, the mm-hmm. amount of money. One of the most expensive flops ever made. Yeah. 
And then she's going to do this play. And this play had been a hit on Broadway in, I think, 1963. Um, mm. Originally, Uta Hagen played uh, yeah. uh, Martha. Martha. Yeah, yeah. And I don't remember the, the other actors off the top of my head. George Grisard oh, George and Gris- Melinda Dillon played Honey. Mm. Mm. And it was a huge hit. And literally within a few weeks after it opened, Jack Warner, of Warner Brothers Jack Warner, saw it and bought the rights Yeah, uh, right away. Now, how are they going to do this movie that is the language is something that's never been seen on screen and the content has never been seen on screen mm-hmm. before, but they decide they're going to get it. And the last people in the world, last person in the world that you would think could play Martha is Elizabeth Taylor. We should uh, talk about that for a second, too, because this is Jack Valenti has just come into the MPA in 1959. He is reversing the code that had been. If you want to do some research about film, find out about films that were done under the code. Yeah, the Hayes Code. The Hayes Code, which they could like kick out certain films. You couldn't put uh, sex on screen. You couldn't put uh, cuss words, all these kinds of things, which is very similar to what we, when we talked about Cine Paradiso, what they, uh, right. the projectionist was supposed to do in the early 40s and 50s when he was putting those films up there to cut those parts out and so this is a film that comes in it costs seven million dollars and they're like the executive apparently sees the first cut and says oh, we've we've bought a seven million dollar snuff film or something like that yeah. right full of full of cuss words because we think it's simple now but this is the first film that kind of opened that door to what we see later on in the 60s late 60s of these exploring these themes of destroying suburbia and uh, exploring cussing, exploring the free expression. And this was even a slightly uh, altered version from Albee's original. Yeah, they pull it back a little bit. Not too much. Not too much. I mean, that's one of the the interesting things is at at first, like the first, you know, they hire a screenwriter, which to me is just mind-boggling to me. (laughs) Like, what do you do you're hired as the screenwriter? later on, come to find out, the actors all went back to Albee's original script, Hmm. you know, and Nichols did too. Yeah, yes, the, 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 except for the two lines that take them to and from the uh, bar, right. basically yeah. right. the cafe. Yeah, they kept, yeah they, but the originally the screenwriter was hired, and one of the changes he made was that they really had had a kid. Yeah, you know, and and so we should tell a little. And bit wanted about, him to have hanged himself at the end. Yeah, mm-hmm. that the for kid real. had committed. Yeah. And, and Nichols said, "No way, I'm not yeah. going to do it." And we should talk a little bit about what this movie is. So, yeah. the plot. I don't know. It's it, it's such a big. It's so small and so big. It is a couple on a university campus. He is a professor. She is the daughter of the president of the university. And it is late at night, two in the morning, after a party. And they have invited another couple new who are young, who just started at the university, back to their house for a few drinks. And hilarity ensues. Well, I... (laughs) I tell you, I don't laugh once during this film. I but do. I, but I, because, because the things that they're talking about, and I don't mean because it's not a dark comedy, it absolutely is a dark comedy. It's, it's unsettlingly powerful and invasive oh, into yeah. relationships that it, I'm like, if I was in something like that, which I have been in my experience, I've been Richard Burton, I've been the cuckold to a very powerful, strong woman, and you don't know how to be a man in those situations because you get such mixed signals all the time. So it was fascinating for me to watch it again in preparation for this podcast and explore both relationships. And that's what's so interesting to me about the film. How I couldn't laugh because it's so close to the truth that it scares you more than anything else. Because because they they proceed to go at each other. And and particularly George and Martha, which is Richard Mm -hmm. Burton and Elizabeth Taylor, are the most brilliant, vicious, um, genius attackers that you could ever possibly imagine. Mm. They make tearing each other down into a fine art. 
in both in completely different ways. One of the reasons, by the way, that no one thought Elizabeth Taylor could play this part is that Martha's supposed to be older. Mm-hmm. She's supposed to be... In her 50s. Yeah, yeah in her 50s. 52. Big, brain, unattractive, uh, a... a a primal force sort of mm-hmm. character. And no one had seen Elizabeth Taylor do anything like that. Right. Ever. Yeah. She had been beautiful and demure and romantic, and that is how people saw her. Yeah. So her taking on this part is crazy. I completely agree, and, and which makes sense is when later on in her life she felt that this was her finest work. Reflecting mm-hmm. back on it, she would say, you know, she felt she'd done her best work on this movie. And it's with this material, given this kind of depth yeah. that you can... Uh, in such range and I, I yeah. love part of the torture that you see and in in how they go to the point of actually finally physically throttling you mm-hmm. know a, a physical chokehold but at the beginning what I really like about this version the movie that you don't always see in, in a stage production is you see the love between them yeah. right they're like these kind of beautiful tender moments where you're like oh they love each other and then you go oh my god do they right. this is yeah. love I actually fell for him. It, that, there. Martha's a romantic at heart. That I am. I actually fell for him. And the match seemed practical, too. For a while, Daddy really thought that George minute, had the Martha. stuff to take over when he was Wait ready a minute, to retire. Martha. And we both thought that naturally... Stop it, Martha. Oh, what you want. I wouldn't go on with this if I were you. Oh, you wouldn't, would you? Will you not? You've already sprung a leak about you-know-what. What? Why? About the sprout, the little bugger, our son. If you start in on this other business, Martha, I warn you. I stand warned. Do we really have to go through all this? So anyway, I married the SOP. I had it all planned out. First, he'd take over the history department. Then when Daddy retired, he'd take over the whole college, you know? That was the way it was supposed to be. Getting angry, baby, huh? That was the way it was supposed to be. All very simple. And Daddy thought it was a good idea, too, for a while. Until he started watching for a couple of years. Getting angry? Until he watched for a couple of years and started thinking that maybe it wasn't such a good idea after all. That maybe Georgie boy didn't have the stuff. That maybe he didn't have it in him. Stop it, Martha. Like hell I will. You see, George didn't have much push. He wasn't particularly aggressive. In fact, he was sort of a flop. A great big fat I hope that was an empty bottle, George. You can't afford to waste good liquor. It is some it's a savage love. Some right. version of love. Yeah. Right. And it is so painful to watch. But they couldn't do it if they didn't love each other. You know what right. I mean? It's like true. that's the um They're it, both complicit in what yeah. they're doing. They yeah. said this is we have agreed this is what we do. Mm-hmm. This is what we've agreed to this is how we do it. Mm-hmm. Um, the it's it's interesting thinking about this as a play versus this as a movie because the, I think the movie allows it to be intimate in a way that the play doesn't. True. And 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 which is a strength because if you see this, I saw this in a fairly small theater. I saw it at Berkeley Rep, really good production, and that's a pretty small theater. And so that's intimate in its own way mm. because you're right. you're right there with the actors. The spaces. Yeah, but the fact that you can have those close ups and someone because when any ever an actor is on stage, they have to project to the back of the house. You know, they have to fill that space. So mm-hmm. even if they're speaking very softly, they're speaking softly in a technical way that can fill the space. Right. Whereas when Richard Burton is speaking softly, he's just talking to George Siegel, and that's it. 
And there's such a, and you're in that close up in a way that you can't be in a close up in a play. Right. If somebody's talking to themselves on film, it has a whole different feel than if they're talking right. to themselves in front of 1,200 people. Right. And you're, and in in film invades a private moment, whereas theater is never private because you're sitting with 300 people in an audience or 400 or 500 or 1,000 people depending mm-hmm. on the stage. So it never, so there's something, there's, you know, there might be an illusion of a private moment, but it's not private in the way that film is private. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Mike Nichols before we go any sure, further. Yeah. So this is Mike Nichols' first film. He's got a fascinating career. He's a German immigrant, grew up in Chicago, and he uh, began doing improv at the company that became Second City. So he's essentially at, exists at the founding of Second City. Like we think of Second City for John Belushi and Gilda Radner and all those Saturday Night Live people, but it existed 15, 20 years before that. Mm-hmm. And there he met Elaine May and formed one of the greatest comedy teams of all time. They're on Ed Sullivan. They were on Broadway. They were huge headliners as this comedy team. And you can go on YouTube right now and you can watch old Nichols and May sketches. Mike Nichols and Elaine May. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Welcome to Long Dust. Can I help you? Yes, I read your ad. I'm interested in the $65 funeral. Was that for yourself? No. For another. Uh, may I ask, where did you catch that ad? TV Guide. Just trying to find out where our trade comes from. Um, I am afraid that I'm going to have to ask you some questions. Yes, that's all right. All right. Uh, can you tell me what was the loved one's name? Seymour Maslow Freen. <laughs> Is that hyphenated? It was. <laughs> and the loved one's address? Uh, 441118 Southeast Huguenot Walloon Drive. Uh, and may I ask what your name is? Charlie. Charlie. Charlie, I'm Miss Loomis, your grief lady. Hi. And he claims I'm not a performer. That's what he says. <laughs> and it's like, um... I beg to differ, you know, when you're that successful. You have a hit show on Broadway, you're on television all the time. I think you can say you're you're a performer, but he decides what he really likes is directing. He has this, you know, and I've, you know, had this same feeling of when I've been on stage and I'm like, am I acting now or am I just directing myself? (laughs) You know, Um, and uh, the first play he directs, as far as I know, is Barefoot in the Park, Neil Mm. Simon, starring a young Robert Redford. Right. And that is a huge hit, huge, huge hit. And he becomes the essentially the biggest director on Broadway uh, in the early 60s. Wow. Um, and he's doing a Nichols and May show and across on Broadway. And across the street is Richard Burton doing Camelot. And they would meet, because this is something that you don't know about actors, is some actors, if they're not on stage for a while, they'll go out of the theater, go around to the corner, particularly Richard Burton, yes. and have a drink. And he, he and Nichols and May, or he and uh, Mike Nichols started to talk, and they became buddies. And they became really good friends. They traveled together. They were in Rome together when Burton and Elizabeth Taylor are together. And they start going off to villas and hanging out. And so when this idea of doing Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf comes along, there's uh, there were other directors who were involved. And Elizabeth Taylor said, no, I want Mike Nichols. So this guy comes in, never directed a movie. And, and how he has to direct 
arguably certainly the the most important play of that decade with the two of the biggest actors of that time yeah. certainly Elizabeth Taylor the biggest whose life is the most publicized and gossiped about thing in the world and he has to deal with material that has never been put on screen right that's a big thing for a young director to <laughs> huge do. and and he handles it he handles Blom. it right yeah yeah uh, figures out how to and, you, and if you watch the way the camera works it's mm. a really inventive well-told story yeah yeah agreed yeah. Um, what do you think about the choice to shoot it in black and white when I was watching it again that was actually a question that we asked out loud why why was it shot in black and white and I I actually I liked it I liked it a lot because it felt like in some ways it took away the distractions um, sometimes the a color film can really lend itself to adding more to what's going on and giving another depth. But I felt like it stripped away the unnecessary things and really left almost like these skeletons standing there. I, yeah, I agree. Um, and, and the for me, the color is the characters. Everything right. else. The language. Has, yeah, and the language. <laughs> yeah, yeah, colorful language. Everything else has to be muted so that that can stand out. And I think, not to say, like, obviously, you've, uh, on the waterfront, you've, numerous classics that are in black and white. But there's something about this particular film and this particular uh, play or script that is that you cannot have any other distractions to understand the nuance of what these of what's going on between these characters all four of them and then separately together as a couple and then separately when they're not with their uh, significant other having those scenes as well so to me the color is in the language and in the in, in their performances the dynamics of yeah, the, the relationships I, 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 yeah I absolutely agree um, one of the reasonings by the way that they chose black and white was they felt that they couldn't make Elizabeth Taylor look older in color. Huh. Mm. They just said you would just see how beautiful and how young she is. And mm. her eyes. Yeah. Mm. Good God. Those violet <laughs> eyes. Yeah. It's, does anyone else in the world have violet eyes? Violet eyes? I don't know. No. That's either. what color her eyes are. Yeah. yeah. I dated a girl a long time ago who had white, uh, no, light blue irises. Really? The whites or, or light blue. I had no idea that was, you could actually have I've that. never even heard of that before. Yeah. It was insane. But the interesting thing to me about black and white, uh, in addition to not being able to see the color of Elizabeth Taylor's beautiful <laughs> eyes, um, is like, so we had all black and white films until yeah. color is introduced in the late 30s. And then from the late 30s until the late 60s, there's this, we're going to make black and white films and we're going to make color films. And there's this certain point where by the early 70s, there are no black and white films. Mm -hmm. And now we get one every few years as the exception. And that's such a tragedy to me because, really? because black and white photography is beautiful photography. Mm -hmm. It's not like there are still great photographers who go out and create black and white photography. Sure. You don't look at Ansel Adams photographs of Yosemite and go, man. So old fashioned. These would be nice if they had color in them. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Yeah. They're perfect. Yeah. And so what you're doing is you're limiting. It's like saying we can't ever do hand-drawn animation anymore, which is something that's now happening. You know, it's like, no, that's a beautiful art form. Yeah. It's not that, that, you know, computer animation is better. It's better at certain things. Right. It's not that color photography. And when it's done well, it doesn't feel limited. No. Yeah. At you all. You don't look at this movie going, I wish I had some color. Right. No. It looks gorgeous. And uh, Hacks, Haskell, what's his name? Wexler. Haskell Wexler is yeah. the DP, yeah. fantastic cinematographer. There's um, something and, about it happening over the course of a night as yeah. well, I feel like, that you just really kind of go, it, it lends itself, not to a dream state per se, but to like kind of an other, you're really in this kind of other place and other state, yeah. you know? Yeah. And Absolutely. that's kind of where they live so much of the time. It's 
not reality, but what happens when they're not in reality, what happens by the end of the... Well, that's the irony, isn't it? It's it seems black and white, but right. there's all this gray. And oh, I yeah. think that's what's that's the underlying uh, possible reason for the black and white uh, photography as well. Like there's this, you, it, it lets you believe that it's this, it's something else when it really is another. It's a color in terms of the the advancing of what it's going to do to film versus what film came before. Right. And I feel like this moment, this film changes everything going Absolutely. forward and in, in a way it harkens back but then it moves forward well and as you said like this is the moment that's the death of the Hayes code yeah and it's right before the birth of the you know the ratings that we have mm -hmm. today and this hits this middle point and they release it unrated with a warning that this is not for kids <laughs> which you know? is basically the premise for a rated R movie these days yeah. right yeah and what's interesting to me is what they're freaking out about in terms of the ratings is God damn and screw you and all these right. you know this kind of line because there's a lot of Jesus and a lot of language that today we kind of see on television wouldn't right. think it was so bad what they're not getting upset about and there's a because I saw a documentary there's a small documentary on the blu-ray about this is the content yeah because it's like and, and that's always fascinating to me is like wait you're you're upset about hearing the, the word fuck <laughs> but you're not upset about watching someone murder this person right it's like the content in this movie is what's disturbing right and it is disturbing i mean it and it gets you in your heart uh in a way because this is you know laying bare the human condition over and over again and the deeper you dig the rougher it gets mm -hmm. in this play John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. So, so let's talk about what this is. Yeah. So, so uh, let's let's talk about what we're talking about in terms of the kid. At the beginning of the play, we have George and Martha alone, and they're having their scene. Um, and the people are coming over, and George says to Martha, "Don't start in on the bit about the kid." Um, and she goes, "No, of course not." And we kind of hear that a little bit, and then he warns her again, "No, seriously, don't bring that up." And then later on, the, this couple comes over and Honey, Sandy Dennis's character, which we're going to have to talk about yes. Sandy Dennis too, because that is a crazy performance. Yep. It's, a, it's among the strangest and most fascinating performances I can think of. And I want to talk to you too about how you approach that part um, as well. But before we get to that, Sandy Dennis or Honey goes off with Martha. And when she comes back, she says, oh, I heard about your son. Mm -hmm. 
And it's really the first real close-up we have in the film. The camera goes in on George as he turns around and realizes that she has that Martha has violated this agreement. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing that occurred to me, by the way, watching it this last time. He's pushing her so hard not to say anything about the kid. <laughs> and then when he's with um, George Siegel, when he's with Nick, he says, uh, Nick asks about children, and George says, that's for me to note and you to find out. And I suddenly went for the first time, Wait, did George want her to bring up the kid? Hmm. Is he manipulating her into doing it? Right. Never oh, occurred wow. to me before. Yeah, knowing her instincts to to right. rebel. If you right. tell the if you tell the kid, yeah. here's a delicious cookie. You cannot have yeah. that cookie. Look I at this want cookie. That cookie. It's really good. Don't touch it. <laughs> as soon as you turn around, that cookie's gone. Yeah, <laughs> does it? And because it's not like George is not a brilliant manipulator. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And so what we discover is that then the kid comes out and they talk about the kid and the kid is 16 and they talk about their love for the kid and they talk about how they've each one of them accusing the other one of messing up the kid yeah. and the kid's away and the kid's birthday is tomorrow. And then as the betrayals go on and Martha is brutal to George, just rips him to pieces over and over and over again. And George is going, I'm going to come at you. Yeah. Um, it's going to come. It's, you're not going to like it. You're not going to like it. And we see this battle rage between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And then we get to Martha and Nick. Right. Yeah. So Nick is the young professor. Martha is flirting with him fairly shamelessly. Right. And throughout a lot of it, we're going, how serious is this? What's happening here? Um, and misrepresenting what he does. He's a biology professor. And right. she says math. Right. And what's interesting about the character of Nick is it's no one ever says his name in the movie. Right. He's, ne- he's never named. He's never. No one ever said. Every other name is said except Nick's, which is interesting. To me. Well, and Honey's a real name. I was like, is that her n- real name? Right. right. No, it's not. Oh, it's right. not. Oh. Are you sure? Really? Yes. This correct. seems like the window to open. So how, how, what's her, how do you know? So is it is it in it, the play that it's not her real name? Or? It doesn't. No, it doesn't say that in the play, but um, from Albie himself. Okay. Right. It's not um, her real name, but that's what she's called, and and that's how we know her. Yeah, um, is we get to this scene with George and Nick, and it is a beautiful scene. It's at this swing, and they've been through a lot. Mm. And Nick starts talking about jokingly about his plans to take over the school, and it you know and it start, and George is egging him on. Oh well, then you're going to take over the history department. Oh, sh-. and then Nick is drunk and playing along. Sure, I'm going to take over the history department. And then they talk about what the strategy is for taking over the history partner. And at some point, you know, Nick says something about plowing a few pertinent wives. Now that's it. I mean, you can shove aside all the older men you can find, but until you start plowing pertinent wives, you're really not working. That's the way to power. Plow them all. <laughs> Which, by the way, plowing a few pertinent wives is an example of how fucking good all these writing. Like every <laughs> sentence is just a sentence. You're like, how did you come up with a line that good? And then it becomes, well, if you're going to plow pertinent wives, then obviously Martha. And Nick right? is it doesn't. They don't get any more pertinent. The way to a man's heart, the wide inviting avenue to his job is through his wife. And don't you forget it. And I'll bet you your wife's got the widest, most inviting avenue on the whole damn campus. <laughs> I mean, her father being president and all. <laughs> you bet your historical inevitability. <laughs> yes, sirree. I just better get her off into the bushes right away. <laughs> Why, you'd certainly better. <laughs> and there's this moment where you go from, we're talk- are we talking about this? Or are, we talk- are you talking about this? You know, I almost think you're serious. Oh, baby, you almost think you're serious, and it scares the hell out of you. And 
then, of course, we're getting to the point where this is actually going to happen. And after this huge fight and violence and all these other things, George comes home and sees... Through the bedroom window. Through the bedroom window, yeah. Martha and another man ostensibly having sex. Right. Now, whether or not they did or did not have sex, we don't actually get to really know. Well, we yeah, we hear Martha... T- uh, make fun of his prowess. Yes. Right. But we also, what's also great about that s- scene in that moment too, uh, Steve, is we had thought that Honey had made her pregnancy up through George's eyes or through Nick's eyes. But in her drunken babbling, it makes right. it feel as if she actually was pregnant and Nick is lying about the hysterical pregnancy to make himself be the victim so that he can plow other well, wait, lives. Wait, wait, wait. So laying his groundwork. So this, I want to ask Kathleen. Yes. So, 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 so be clear. Does that change? Reveals... That's not in the play. That's in the movie only, right? No, no, it's in the play. That she says that she thought she was really pregnant and lost it? Yes. Wow. But the, okay. it depends on, you know, the play gets cut. Mm-hmm. And so, because it's a very long play and there's certain things that are cut and oftentimes a lot of honey stuff is cut because wow. it feels extraneous to so some th- of the l- other. Let me explain what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. In the scene with Nick and George, Nick is telling the story about his marriage and that he married honey because she got puffed up. And then she went down. And then she went down. <laughs> that she had what was called an hysterical pregnancy. She was up. She was up and then she was down. Yeah. And you married her while she was up. Yeah. Um, and so having play, And then we have this drunken scene with honey where she's talking about it Mm -hmm. and i i have my impression of what she's saying what do you think honey is saying oh do i have to give it away (laughs) (laughs) i love the i love for there to be mystery um i think she's terrified of being pregnant i don't think she wants to be pregnant Mm. me personally and um do you think she was pregnant if you could remember before albie told you the story or the truth what did you think did Albie tell you the truth? I, the reason she's not telling us is because someone told her the truth. Yes and no. Here's the thing. Albie will not. Albie doesn't always. This is a video and you had seen the conflict on Kathleen's face. Um, I, you know, I feel like I, in some ways I feel like I have to um, respect and honor Albie's mm-hmm. intention, which of is course. always to not, to not necessarily say what the truth right. is. Because sure. it is there for you to interpret, and then the mystery is gone. Yeah. Um, me, personally, I thought she was pregnant. Okay. Um, I was not always convinced that the going down was accidental. So you thought she had an abortion? Perhaps. Wow. That's, so that's what I think watching the movie. Yeah. Cause, and that's not... Saying what the Albie's intention is. No, That's exactly. what I get from watching the scene. And in particular, Burton's reaction. Yeah. Because when Burton hears her saying, he knows, because he's a collector of everyone's secrets right. in the film. And he has this reaction of, oh, now, you. before I knew things from your husband, now I know something about you that your husband doesn't know. Right. Which is that you did get pregnant. Husband thinks it's hysterical pregnancy. Fake pregnancy, then it goes down. But in fact, it was real pregnancy yes. and you chose not to have the baby. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's fine. I want to just go back to something you said of sure. whether or not you find this play funny or you find the movie funny. Yeah. And and I'm not saying you're wrong because, yeah. because it's subjective. I it is very subjective. Yeah. Even though I know what's coming, I still find things funny. And maybe because I am so close to some of it, I find things particularly funny because of what you know. Right, mm-hmm. what I do know and, and how things are played. I, but I found myself, not, I'm not laugh out loud, it's not like, mm-hmm. you know, watching a sitcom, but there mm-hmm. are things where you're like, oh, ah, 
God. Well, listening to George talk. That, that, I, that reaction I had. Yeah. If that counts for laughing, then I did laugh. Because through the movie, I'm like, holy, wow. Like, it's through most of it. So, yeah. That's... L- l- listening to George talk is like, yeah. it's like a miracle. Yeah. I mean, he, the things that he says and the speed at which, there were times where I had to, when we watched I had to stop. Rewind. And, and go back and, what did he, did he really <laughs> say, did he that? say that? <laughs> oh, my God. Like, at one point, he calls, calls her honey boobs. Yeah. yeah. Like, you're just like, and it's, and, but then he's on. He's on mm-hmm. to something else. It's like, yep. what did you say? And you see, particularly uh, the character of Honey, she's behind for most of it. Oh, yeah. so behind. You know, and every once in a while sort of picking up going, wait, wait, I th- that seems familiar to me. His mouse, she tooted brandy immodestly and spent half her time in the upchuck. I know these people. Do you? Oh. But she was a money baggage amongst other things. Godly money ripped from the golden teeth of the unfaithful and she was put up with. And she was put up with. Stop her. Please, please don't. Beg, baby. George. Oh. And now we get a flashback to how they got married. No! Yes! Why? How they got married? Well, how they got married was this. The mouse got all puffed up one day, and she went over to Blondie's house, and she stuck out her puff, and she said, Look at me. I don't like this. Stop it. Look at me. I'm all puffed up. Oh, my goodness, said Blondie. And so they were married. And so they were married. And then? And then? What? And then what? And then the puff went away again like magic. Puff went away. Poof. Honey, I didn't mean to. Honestly, I didn't mean to. And this is, fertility is a really key part of this story, mm-hmm. is that George and Martha couldn't have pregnancies. Yeah. You know, there's the whole scene uh, where, you know, the, we're talking about the hysterical pregnancy and George says, Martha doesn't have hysterical pregnancies. Right. Martha doesn't have any pregnancies at all. Right. Which you hear early on when you're still hearing about the kid, and it's like, yeah. oh well, except for the one time, right? And then of course uh, we get to George is plotting his revenge for seeing them sleep together, and there's some bells which Honey hears, and he comes up with this idea, which is horrible. Hmm. And the idea is, which we reveal later, and he uses Honey as his witness that a man from Western Union came. The bells and, were the. And the bells were the doorbell, door. and Honey is confirming this. Yes, this happened, and that the telegram was that the kid is dead, that the kid has died. Right. And and this is, goes back to me reading this play, because when you're reading the play, there are things that ring wrong about the kid story. I don't understand the kid story, but you don't believe. Why isn't the kid there at one thirty in the morning? Yeah, if he's a teenager. Right. Where is right. the kid? And yeah. why? How can they argue about the kid's eye color? I mean, that just seems so strange. <laughs> right. And the way they talk about the little bugger, and the way they're, you know, it's like, and not bringing up the Stop kid. Stop sick! Stop calling him that. And that, well, if you had a kid, then the other people at the university would know about the kid. I mean, right. And then you slowly, just as Nick has the realization, oh my god, I think I know what's going on here. Or, oh my god, I think I understand. There's no kid. Mm-hmm. They've made him up. And now George is fi- killing the fictitious kid. Yeah. Well, Martha, I'm afraid our boy isn't coming home for his birthday. Of course he is. No, Martha. Of course he is. I say he is. He can't. He is. He I can't. say... Martha! Our son is dead. He was killed late in the afternoon on a country road with his learner's permit in his pocket. He swerved the car to avoid a porcupine and drove straight into a... You can't do that. Large tree. 
You cannot do that. Oh, my God. I thought you should know. No. No. You cannot do that. You can't decide these things for yourself. I will not let you do that. You have to leave around noon, I suppose. I will not let you decide these things. Because there are matters of identification, naturally, and arrangements to be made. You can't do this. I won't let you do this. Get your hand out of me. I haven't done anything. Now, you listen to me. Our son is dead. You you can you get that to your head? Let go of me. Listen to me carefully. We got a telegram. There was a car accident, and he's dead. Poof. Just like that. Now, how do you like it? No! Because the game has to end. In that, yes, and I think no, the also, game has to go on. No, no, by killing the kid, he ends the, the game. The only way they can, the only sure. way they can maintain is to give up the illusion, give up the fantasy that, of that child. Yeah, and this is this is what I think coming to it. Having not seen it thirty hundred or three thousand times or whatever, like watching it for the third or fourth time when I watched it here, I like, I thought to myself, they are using this young couple to play their last game to finally put away this child so that they can go into what is the beginning of the twilight of their relationship and their ages to explore the next part of their marriage. That's what I think. They use them and they spit them out. And because they are that ferocious of intellectuals and emotional, uh, I don't know, emotional psychopaths that they are sociopaths that they are able to use this young couple's marriage. And I think when they're leaving that uh, Nick and Honey become them in the future. That's what I, I, I the, the reason Nick and Honey don't is because they're not at that level. They're not that. Not smart. yet. Honey, can't, honey, honey's not going to. I can't imagine can't. Martha and George were at that level at that age of Nick and Honey either. That's that comes through time. Right. Yeah. But you got to have some genius. You know, you don't, you don't, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know, a young girl who's the, the daughter of the university. She, yeah, she managed to pull one over on Nick in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Honey, that's yeah. true. Honey, that's did, true. Yeah. When a woman ages, when she comes into her power, it is something to see from the 20 year old bright eyed girl to become Here's the, the other 30 thing. year old woman. You don't really think about it. Yeah. She does, shockingly, you don't expect it from her, but she does, has this crazy thing where she's fed by the violence. Oh yeah. yeah! Oh my God! Yeah. You so, know yeah. she starts getting off, and you're you're like, "What <laughs> is this?" And she's like, "You know." Yeah. Now is that something that's really in the movie, or is that something that happens? Oh, that's in... something in the play as yeah. well. Wow. She's, she's a thrilled crazy by character. It. Thrilled. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and so Honey is this somewhat disconnected, not getting everything that's going on, getting drunker because and drunker. She's so drunk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because by the way, to be clear, the level of drinking in this film oh, and in the play, it, but particularly watching the film is. Insane. <laughs> I'd be dead of alcohol poisoning. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I'm drunk off one drink. I'm buzzed off one drink. I'd be dead. But the, the way they show up, Nick and Honey, she's like, she does not want to be there. You can no. tell that he has right. dragged her for, right. and she's going and along. Uh, you're, I'm sure they've already been drinking. Yes. They've been at a sure, party, been at the party already. Yeah. You know, a party that has already ended. Yeah. They've, you know, survived one whole evening of. Well, and this is what's so crazy about the film. Can you imagine? Going to a couple's house you don't know right. at two a.m. Right, you know, for an app for another nightcap. Well, that's the thing, and I think she's being the dutiful wife. Exactly. He's just moved here. He has to establish relationships. He has to network. He's a young. She's you know, and this is at that, that time. Keeping this is up how it was at the time. Right, keeping up appearances, all of that. So you can like even her body language when she's walking through the door is like, oh god, I have to do this. You know, she does not like. Hey, you know, there's a difference. Well, and and, but she is also. In, it, she is also. Inhabiting the role of the dutiful wife. Yes. You know, she sings her husband's praises. 
she she keeps thinking that this is going to be normal society, right? right. And that uh, this is what how she knows people how are, to function. This, in this is how we're supposed to behave. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's talk. Since we're, let's talk about Sandy Dennis. Mm. So uh, I, I want to ask you first: is that is that really weird to watch a, someone inhabit a role that you did for five months, eight days, eight shows a week? Um, yes and no. I mean, because I knew, in some way, it's actually really wonderful because because the production that we did is not on film and we don't right. have a way to revisit the experience. This is my kind of my only peephole yeah. into right. uh, a living, breathing version of it now. Had you seen um, the movie before you did the play? I had, but I, I didn't want to, I didn't watch it for the purpose of auditioning for the play. Right. I did not because of that. I had seen it right. and then I was like, oh, I don't want to go back to that because I don't want to, you don't want to try to copy what somebody else is doing well particularly her performance is so sandy dennis i, yeah. think, it would, I think it would kill you <laughs> to, 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 to even have a, that in your head at all yeah um i remember discovering her on the out-of-towners mm, right yeah i, I remember uh-huh. watching that in a hotel room in new york with my parents when we were visiting good, when i was good like time and place to watch it yeah so it's 1920 years old and they had gone out to dinner right so i was in charge of my brother and sister and i sat and watched that film and i'd never heard of that film and i laughed all through that film and the her and Alan Arkin and the stuff that they get into and her it's innocence, movie, yeah. her bright eyed innocence right. compared to his like stupid uh, at times uh, um, the judgment of the world, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And it was, she's those actresses. They're from the school of Shelley. Like you put them in the Shelley Duvall box like those, right. you know, it's so difficult to find actresses who can walk that line because they have to be intelligent. Like Georgia Engel is like that. She's fantastic in playing all through the seventies and eighties, those kinds of parts. Right. And so Sandy Dennis has this, you want to take care of her, but you're afraid to take care of her at the same time. So it's fantastic. Well, because you have the sensation of watching her. When you're watching Richard Burton, you're like, I'm watching a great performance. This is a fantastic, this is a brilliant actor at the top Mm -hmm. of this game. When you're watching Sandy Dennis, you're just watching this thing, this, this, Creature, creature, mm-hmm. who's just—that is who she is. Mm-hmm. There's no now. I've never met Sandy Dennis. Right. She might be completely different, but the feeling is that's her. Yeah. You know, right. this weird, odd, filled with complicated emotions, who's mm-hmm. struggling to speak at all time and trying to keep up and having you know, like in this other world throughout mm-hmm. the whole play. It is, it is bizarre. Yeah. Even when she's laughing, when she's drunk, right? Yeah. Right. I You're like. It. Oh, okay it's like oh, almost overboard and you're like oh there's there's a desire to break out of these walls that she has found herself in because right. society told her she needed to marry this guy right and so i think that the the, the idea of the abortion is the break is she has this streak in oh her to push she back. has something yeah. in there that she is conflicted over oh, yeah well yeah but everybody does and so that's like her secret that well and, and she one of the things that's really interesting watching her she's almost always smiling throughout the film mm-hmm even when things are horrible and when she's saying, please, I don't, I don't want to be here. I don't want to hear this. I don't want to, but she's still smiling. And it, and I I think, you know, we're always trying to get along in society. We always, we always want to be liked. Even it's very, I had this, I had this realization when my dad was quite ill and I'd ask my dad, how are you doing? And my father was dying at the time. Mm -hmm. And he would say, okay. And I'd ask my mom, how are you doing? And she would say, okay. And I realized we almost always say, okay, it's very hard to say I'm not good. 
Right. You know, we don't want to admit that we're going through something. And so, well, I think by saying something other than that, then you open the door for breaking down and falling apart. So so often people say, I'm okay. So as not to crack the door open. Right. Right. Don't pry because you're going to open up. Yeah. Right. And you watch Honey, you watch Sandy Dennis, rather. She's always smiling. Mm -hmm. She's always trying to make this okay in terms of society, in terms of the rules that she grew up with when nothing she has seen is okay. Yeah. Don't know if you know that during production she was pregnant and she had a miscarriage on set. Oh wow! Oh my god! Oh wow! No, I did not know. Isn't that crazy <sighs> to think about? Yeah. Right. I don't know at which point yeah. you know what had been filmed and what hadn't, but in terms of informing so much of oh what happens, like of all times and places and all circumstances. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, and you know we had to say like Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor have a famously difficult marriage they're yeah. married more than once yep. which is always a weird thing it's like you get married and then you go through the pain of divorce yep. and then marry the same person again and then divorce them again right that's a lot and he was engaged to somebody else in between then right <laughs> and he is a major alcoholic yes burton so and and there are rumors that he was too drunk to to work several days during the shooting of oh, this wow. i'm not sure if that's true so i don't wow. want to like well i think that's also what adds to like elizabeth taylor has to put on 30 pounds she has to go and try to portray frumpy. She does her best. She's a beautiful woman. Burton, because of the drinking, that ages you. That puts lines on your face. It yeah. gives a natural energy of an older person. Right. You know what I'm saying? That especially it changes your physicality. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And your your yeah your physicality. Just, yep. All of it you bring to the part. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And your how much of that is fueling what you're saying, fueling what you're doing. And plus, exploring something like this, considering the volatility of their own marriage. Couple marriages right. and relationship period must be must have been something for both. I mean, we just had Brad and, and Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie divorce after they'd done that City by the Sea movie, which was exploring a loveless marriage and the right. destruction that they do to each other in that film. It's, it's not a good film, but they destroy each other in that film. I think it's always dangerous to do that with another partner. Why would you do that with why? someone? Why? Why would you? Why do that? even? Yeah, but this is the motions. But this is the life of an artist and this is this is what Albie would say. Albie would say, Well, that's why we're here. You know, like the art is important. Well, I don't know. I'm not gonna I will speak keep my right. marriage intact. <laughs> no, I guess it's like for the artists involved. Yes, I see why we do that uh, as our life's work in order to hold a mirror up. But if you are truly invested with the person you are playing that part with, you are yeah. risking a lot mm-hmm. by yeah. you know, stepping out and playing and saying and doing things which somehow like god then the reality and the fiction really do start to blur well well, it makes you wonder you know you want to ask the question like well what's more important the art or the life and people answer that question differently and i would love to be able to ask elizabeth taylor and richard burton that question you know like you know like what is would you rather have this great film or had your marriage work I would rather I don't have know my that they're mutually work. exclusive. I mean, is it possible for people to have done that? And then I think ultimately, perhaps it's not the film, but it's yeah. actually the fact that they weren't. Sure, right. sure, of course. I, I'm not saying the film broke them right. up in yeah. any way. Yeah. Uh, certainly, they had to go through some stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about Bergen. Mm. So uh, Bergen is uh, a name for bourbon, and it is mm-hmm. the monologue that uh, George gives. And Richard Burton's performance in this monologue is stunning, mostly because it's so flat, I think. It is so so strangely and startlingly flat. Yeah, he's just saying this thing, and he's putting 
And it's so intimate. The camera's right up close, and he just is saying this story. And it's quite long. There's no cut, and it's just a close-up as he's telling you this story. And there's something so captivating about it. And by the way, he was having trouble remembering his lines Mm -hmm. at this time. And Nichols was really worried that he would be able to get through a whole take. And he had cuts to George Siegel so that he could, he could cut different performances together. And they, they, they do it three or four times, no good. He keeps losing his lines. And then they do maybe fifth or sixth take, and he gets it, the whole thing. And it's just perfect. Mm-hmm. And Nichols gives him a hug and a kiss, and they, they rap for the day, and they're like, that's it, we got it. And they look at the rushes the next day, and they're overexposed. Oh, my God. And it looks like... Uh. He, Mike Nichols describes him as high noon. And he basically goes up to the cinematographer and says, I don't know what you have to do, but you have to make this work. You have to make this look like nighttime because we're never going to get that performance again. And they did. They stopped it down and they processed it. And that's the shot that's in the film. Um, That's amazing. The performance is, I don't know how you, I don't know how you could do a performance that's so flat with so little on it that is so 100% captivating and involving. It's like it vibrates at a different level. Mm-hmm. It's yes. so small and so yeah. fast that it's it, it almost seems like nothing, but it's there's so uh-huh. much. We drank free that night. And we were bought champagne by the management, by the gangster father of one of us. And of course, we suffered Next day, each of us alone on his train away from the city and each of us with a grown-up's hangover. But it was the grandest day of my youth. Yeah, you're just 100% in it. To me, there's... There's a reason superstars are superstars, especially as actors. There's something about their energy or their essence that you are gravi- you gravitate to or millions of us gravitate to in mass. And I think for me, what I'm seeing as a fellow, as an actor watching that, I'm seeing all the technique that he's been trained with uh, drip away or, 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 or fall away. And it's just Richard Burton talking to you about this, right. how he would if he was sitting with you late at night and you're an old friend of his and he's just talking about it. Yeah. There's no extra, I'm no saying playing, it like this. No yeah, there's no presentation. You know, yeah, right, exactly. It's just truth. Right. And that's straight truth. Right, straight truth in the middle of this insanely weird film. Which is yeah. one of the reasons it makes right. it so, yeah. uh, you wonder, is this his truth or is he telling right. you the story? What's the truth of the story? Because he tells this story, and this is, I'm so glad you said that. It's exactly what I wanted to bring up. He tells this story as, this is something that happened to me and I watched my friend do this thing. Yeah. Then we later hear Martha say, he had this book about this thing and then later she says no he this he says this really happened to him mm-hmm. and that we're in this oh, like yeah, right. we're like three levels deep in this lie <laughs> and that and then when he kills the one of the characters in the in the Bergen story or the main character in the Bergen story which may or may not be him yeah. he says with his, with his learner's permit in his pocket yeah. he's driving down a country road with his dad and he swerves to avoid a porcupine and goes into a tree and kills his dad that's when he tells the story when he then kills the little bugger, his son, when he describes how his son died, he says 
he swerved to avoid a porcupine. He tells the same story. Mm -hmm. So now we have lie upon lie upon lie. And so maybe George is a person who accidentally killed his mother with a shotgun and killed his father in a car accident. Maybe he didn't. Mm -hmm. We don't. And that, that's the moment you're in the sort of the third act of the play. You're in the end. And the lies have twisted on themselves in so many ways that you go, oh, I can't know mm -hmm. what's true. Including, and I want to get back to this, is Nick a houseboy or a stud? Good question. Mm. Watching it again, I thought, oh my God. I, at first I was like, oh, he's, <clears throat> he's a houseboy. And then I was like, no. He's a stud. He's mm. a stud. And then you go, oh, maybe she just said he was a stud to make him feel better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's so not clear, which is the beauty of the... It's, it's such a complicated... So this is, to be clear, what we're talking about yeah. is Nick has been up in the bedroom with Martha. George comes in with... Uh, posies for uh, a, a nice, snap, which is such a cute, right. such a cute scene. And then Martha's been talking about Nick's prowess in bed and calling him a houseboy. And and now George is trying to get to the bottom of it. Are you a houseboy? If so, you got to make us drinks. Or are you a stud? And this is this really weird scene where here's the so man weird. you've cuckolded. You have been up. We know with his wife. Mm -hmm. And you are trying to convince him that you were able to uh, get it, you know, to, to finish, to do your job. That's a weird scene. Yeah. And he, the husband, George, is pushing him to say a thing that will hurt him. Right. Yeah. That is, and then Martha may or may not be lying about what he did or did, was not able to do. It's the, like, what, what is her ultimate goal? Is it to hurt him? Is it to hurt George? In yeah. which case... Then you say he's, he's a stud. Not a, he's not a houseboy. Yeah. Right. You know, but, or is it, uh, you know, how often does, you know, is the uh, goal, I love you, I'll spare you. It's not really here. No. I yeah. love you, I'll show you how far I can go with this. Yeah. Right. It's the other way around. This, these are the moments that I find unsettling, and this is what I talk about in why it's not always a movie that I laugh at, because it's, it's just so unsettling, the idea that he's so casual about the fact that his wife just had sex in their own bedroom in his house, like right in front well, of him. Well, he's not this casual. Is a, I mean, and then I say this dangerously. This is a, quintus, this is a white movie. This does not happen in the Latino culture. Let me tell you that right now. We do not suffer a man sleeping with our wife in the bedroom. No matter how much we've been drinking, it does doesn't happen. And that's what's so fascinating to watch about this. This is not my upbringing. This is not my culture. Yeah. But I watch it in a fascinating psychological way to watch. No, because I've met people like that. That in that film, I've been at the university, met people in power who talk a certain way, or been in relationships like this, been the young guy, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so, to me, that's what's so amazing about them. And Albie's writing. It is so psychologically invasive that for the '60s, and we we're just like, what, you know? Because it's the movement is just starting about exploring psychology and going to see right. a psychiatrist and all those kinds of things. Because we're exploring relationships, we're destroying the myths of suburbia, and that's what you see over and over again in this movie. Well, it's funny because I'm not, in no way am I saying that this is what I grew up with at all. Of course. But what I do understand is I grew up in a house where uh, my dad loved games, played a lot of games, and you always played games to win. It was very competitive in my house. I was never allowed to win in anything until I finally earned it. Candyland, it didn't matter. I would get, you know, there was no letting, no letting the kid win. And so the how you play the game was really important in my upbringing. And what they're doing throughout this movie is playing games and the part of the game is you don't ask you don't cry uncle 
The mm-hmm. game is how much can you take? And so if George, and we see how hurt he is, he's crying on the stoop of his yeah. house. But if he shows that, if he exposes that weakness to Martha, he lo- not only loses the game, he loses her. Yeah. Their relationship is built right. on torturing each other. So he must come in and do what he has to do. Mm-hmm. Now, is it insane? Yes. And, and it's this complicated, unbelievably complicated level of lies and self-torture and deception and the interesting thing too about the houseboy thing is that martha after saying no no you're a stud then and george is obviously upset says truth and lies isn't that what she says yeah or something like truth and lies george don't you understand and i think she might be giving him a hint that he's a houseboy jesus truth and illusion who knows the difference, eh, toots? Eh, houseboy? I'm not a houseboy. Look, I know the game. You don't make it in the sack. You're a houseboy. I am not a houseboy. Well, then you must have made it, yes? Yes? Somebody's lying around here. Somebody's not playing the game straight. Come on, come on. Who's lying, Martha? Come on. Tell him I'm not a houseboy. No, you're not a houseboy. So be it. Truth and illusion, George. You don't know the difference. No, but we must carry on as though we did. Right. She I, mu- I feel like in that moment I got the same thing. Yeah. But she has to say she has to say he's a stud because she's because that's the she's game. playing to win. Yeah. Right. And and so she's trying to give a hint to make it less painful for George, but George can't hear it because she just said he's a stud. Mm-hmm. I mean it's so convoluted and twisted and painful. I'll be said the only thing he didn't necessarily like in the end was uh overhead shots i think is uh, what it was oh interesting oh, wow. that in the music i know that i know that in the very final shot he saw albie saw the final shot this final moment between george and martha and there was no music in the early right. cut and he went he went oh it's perfect because what albie albie doesn't want you to walk away feeling good no yeah right yeah he wants you to walk away feeling conflicted and yes. upset and and he feels that if you walk away pissed off at him he's he's cool. done something right yeah mm-hmm. he's good and so the ending of the movie with no music felt stark and difficult and troubled and it leaves you with space and and, and a mind frame to kind of work through what you've just been through mm-hmm. but if you, but then when he saw the final version and there's music over it which is somewhat sweet and melancholy and tender that he hated it. Yeah. I believe that. All right. Yes. No. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf. I am, George. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? I am. What do you think? Do you like the music? The I, I don't mind it because uh, because of how they constructed the, the film itself. It's not the play. The film is not the play, right? They've True. already made so many cuts, so many so many changes. Adding the roadhouse scene, the scene outside, you know, where right. where uh, where she's in the back of the car, mumble, and the, all that kind of stuff that happens. So you, it, it's not necessarily the play. So when she says, "I am George," "I am," in the music, it, right. it's to me, it's adds to the uh, unsettlingly comic connection that they have uh, or tragic comic connection that they have as a couple. It just adds this weird kind of element to it. What do you think? You know, I'm sitting here thinking about it. What would it be if there, 
as a film with that last moment and she says that and yeah. then nothing and silence. I mean, we just, we don't come across that very often yeah. no. in terms of film. We are usually steered toward or guided toward that which, you know, somebody wants us, feel. right, mm-hmm. what we're yeah. supposed to feel. And so I, I love that idea that I'll be wanted to leave you mm-hmm. without that, right. without a crutch, without a steering wheel or a compass, just figure it out for yourself. But it's not often that we see that. Well, and that, part of that is the difference between theater and film. True. Right? Is that theater is generally for an audience who are, who, who are willing to deal with more ambiguity for whatever reason than mm-hmm. film audiences. Um, the, for me, I like the music. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I totally understand the argument of why not have it. Of course. But, but for me, I think the play is conflicted and confusing and upsetting enough that it's okay to throw the audience a bone. Yeah. Like, and I You're love... So generous. I know, it's true. <laughs> but I, I, I think... Because it's a, a movie-going audience is not a theater-going it's audience. It's true. Right? No. A movie-going audience, entertain me, tell me what to feel. I paid ten, uh, $10. I want to walk out of the film feeling somewhat excited or somewhat okay with the world. Right. And it's so fantastic because everything that was happening at the, around this time, uh, you know, all this stuff that was going on in the, in the world... People thought this could be an escape or whatever. It's Richard Burton, it's Elizabeth Taylor, right? But it's not oh, that bad. No. And they're getting people are getting ripped to pieces internally from what they're watching. Because I imagine a lot of them see shades of their own marriages in what they're watching on screen. The unspoken about, spoken about relationships in suburbia, right? right? This this the, between uh, between intellectuals. They, if you're that smart, you can destroy someone on levels that someone right. who's stupid cannot, and that's. Can be even more vicious. Well, and it's interesting with the, with the music because Albi says, and I've heard him in interviews saying, yeah. George and Martha love each other. That's very clear. He yeah. says that, and to me, that music in the end is where you you know they love each other. Mm-hmm. If you don't have the music in the end, you don't know that they love each other. That's interesting. In the same way, whereas when you hear that music and it's so tender, and you go, oh, and it, it, it to me. Knowing they love each other makes it hurt more mm-hmm. on a certain level. Oh, yeah. Because you go Absolutely. like, oh, man, you're going to do this again. Mm-hmm. And you've done this before. Right. And over and over. I'm, just a lifetime of... Yeah. <sighs> I mean, we sense that this might be the, the, the biggest one. Right, yes. because he killed Absolutely. the now, child. Right. Yeah. Which, they weren't, which was never in the plan. And because she violated the rule of telling... Right. Someone outside right. about their game. Um, so, John, final thoughts. Uh, yeah, for me as a novice to the movie, uh, not as experienced as either one of you with your love of the movie, it, it was so much, so interesting to re-explore it again at 45 years old, you know, to see yeah. it from a completely different perspective of when I saw it when I was 35, you know, and so there was so much here that my own personal growth I watch and see what those moments where I've been those characters, I've been done those things or experienced those things. That's what's so great about the movie. It's 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 timeless in that way. It 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 will always apply because human beings will always do this kind of stuff. There will be people, people doing this in the year 3000. There will be something like a version of this. And that's what's so good. And I do want to give a little bit of love to George Segal, which we haven't talked about enough uh, in great. the film, who is so good and yeah. has to play. He has the less dynamic part of, like he is the less, least dynamic character of all four, but still everything revolves around him. The yeah. sleeping, the stuff with Honey, or the stuff with George, all of it it's revolves like around him. Uh-huh. He's like the maypole. Yeah, he's the maypole. Yeah, exactly. And everyone else gets to fly around him because he is trying. He is the one trying like to figure us all out. He's, he's the, the straight man. Yeah. yeah, and that's what's so fun about. And, and he's probably the most like us as the audience. Yes, yes. He's the one who's sort of 
seem seemingly normal thinking but, he knows what's going on yeah. and completely doesn't yeah, yeah. And, but he does catch on eventually you know, yeah. to things as we go along and to, where, and to where it leads and i think the ending is fantastic for both couples you know they've taught that young couple what a possible future could be for them and them at the end when he's carrying when richard burton is carrying elizabeth taylor up the stairs i feel for the first time in the entire film genuinely that they do love each other as completely fucked up individuals but they do love each other yeah. I want to get your final thoughts, but now I, I realize I have two questions for you okay. I want to ask. Question number one, which I think is key to this play, why don't Nick and Honey leave? You want me to answer that? <laughs> yes. Well. I, I think for Nick, I think he has too much invested in what he's new here, and he's really, he's a climber. He wants something out of it. And um, what's in it for him? I mean, right. it, anytime you don't leave a room, what's in it for you? Mm-hmm. You know, right. why are you there? Honey's just, <laughs> how would she get home? She's to a certain extent, you know, reliant on somebody else for right. that, uh, make the move to exit. I mean, could she walk out by herself? Yes, but I don't think she's that person. Uh, yeah, I think, I think what Albie does he, he takes it right to the edge so many times is that there's a certain societal thing about how we're all supposed to behave. Right. And it, and what he continues to do is right when he pushes it to the, this is now horrible. He does something, something to make them stay. Right. You know, and for her, this is, as you're saying, this is unlike anything else. And there is this crazy, weird thrill for her being exposed to this insanity. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it really touches upon some kind of deep need she has to let go, I think. Right. You know? Well, she does dance like the wind. She does. <laughs> yeah. And this could be her parents. Um, she could have totally, like, had parents like this, that character. Well, she came she from something. Have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, her, her backstory is pretty yeah. interesting, too. And, and my second question for you is, how are Nick and Honey after this? And I, Oh, I, th- I think this is one of those things that changes them forever. There's That's a deep, opened, throbbing, bleeding scar after tonight <laughs> that they will never be able to act like it's not there. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, once you open up, you know, that wound, I don't think it ever closes. You might right. hide it, but I don't think it's ever the same. That's the yeah. irony that both of them go through the death of a child in their own separate way. Right. right. It's how do they one is really the death of a child. Possibly right. with honey, and the other one is a fict- fictional, but still no less no less effective and powerful to that particular couple, to the respective yeah. couples. Um, so, your final thoughts on the film? Uh, I I don't know that I'll ever have final thoughts on this film. <laughs> <laughs> I do hope to see it again, uh, watch it again, because I feel like every time I watch it, I get something else out of it, and I notice something else. And um, I'll be waiting to hear your play by play commentary blow when you do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when you do that one. Um, uh, that'll be it, something. Yeah. Final thoughts. It's, I, I feel like it's a really great American classic. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, for me, the, the, I, I would say for people who are, want to be artists, if you want to be an actor, if you want to be a writer, if you want to be a director, this is one for you to study. So you can study it for Mike Nichols camera work and how he blocks the actors and how he, he moves them around when he uses handheld, when he, when he's having you focus on something, someone in the background who isn't talking, which is something you'll see in Mike Nichols in the graduate. You'll see it in Mm -hmm. carnal knowledge is that the idea of 
watching the observer, watching George as Martha talks about him, that the, these are things you watch as a director. And of course, watching Burton and Sandy Dennis and George Siegel and Elizabeth Taylor and how they chew their way through this mm -hmm. material is just unbelievable acting. We should say one last thing with the film. It was nominated for 14 right. Academy Awards or uh, all the Academy Awards you could be nominated for at that time, tying Cimarron. Right. Uh, and Every possible... Win. Yeah, go ahead. No, every possible category yeah. it was nominated in. And only one, what Liz Taylor and Sandy Dennis, Dennis won. They, and they, the, no one else won. Cinematography. Oh, Cinematography, Haskell West. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, should have won because right. Man for All Seasons is perfectly fine film. It's a fine film. We're never going to talk about it. No, we're I'll not doing that right Cinematography. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. I, I, I rewatched it fairly recently and it was much less good than I had remembered. It's whatever. It's annoyingly languid. It, it doesn't yeah. necessarily stand the test of time no, like no. this will mm -hmm. continue yeah. to. And giving, giving, you know, the, it's, it won directing, best picture, best actor, um, and it should not. Yeah. Um, this, this should have won. Um, uh, and so, so for performance, for directing, and then for writing, this is, this is if you want to be a writer, like I said at the beginning, this is Mount Everest. Every single line, every speech is filled with wit. It's filled with intelligence. It's filled with complexity. It's filled with unbelievable subtext. And maybe most importantly, it's filled with mystery. Yeah. You don't get to know. You get to feel all these things, but Albie is always keeping you guessing. Even though it's, you know, someone gives you a huge monologue and then you still go, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> On that note. <laughs> Uh, as always, we would love to hear what you think of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Uh, you can reach us on Facebook. Our page is The Cinephiles. That's C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. That's our fancy spelling. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter at S.R. Morris. John, where can they reach you? You can always reach me at The Roca Says, R-O-C-H-A, on Twitter and on Instagram. And please, uh, every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the top 10 show drops on uh, the Collider Network where me and Matt Nose count down the top 10 films a particular theme of a film that's coming out that week and then we just announced what I can say Super Animation Game Time is now a go on the Twitch channel for Geek and Sundry Yuri Lowenthal and I will now be interviewing people in voiceover animation and in voiceover video games who construct write, produce and act in these projects and discover who they are and how they got to be in this business. Are you going to have animators on the show too? Absolutely. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And Kathleen, I should have asked you, do you do Twitter or any of those things? <laughs> no. Oh, there's no way to reach Kathleen. Here, here's what you should do. You know talk what? to Steve Morris. Yeah. Talk to Steve Morris. <laughs> yes. Everyone contact me. I will, I will send messages to Kathleen. I'm on you Facebook. <laughs> you don't. You don't want these people finding you on Facebook. Yeah, no. You, you don't. can't trust the cinephiles fans. I don't think. But what you can do is, if you love audiobooks, and I love audiobooks, is mm. Kathleen is a regular uh, audiobook voice. And if you Ooh. go on Audible, you can search for her, and you can see how many books have you done. Bet now? You can. I don't know. I'd have to count. Wow, it's a lot. I, uh, it's a nice. It's a nice number. It's yeah. a good number. It? Do you teach it as well? I have not as of yet. If you have so many. It seems to be many. untapped. I mean, potential. there are people who have far more than I do, but I'm uh -huh. uh, certainly enjoying uh, the early span of my career right sure. now in yeah. audiobooks. All right, so that's it for this week, and we will see you next time on the Cinephiles. Mm -hmm.